0: How's it going? Hey, um, it's going well. I uh, took today off and I'll be doing work tomorrow and Sunday. Uh, yeah. Before we get started, I uh, want to reiterate, well, I'm perfectly happy to have this conversation. I, I do hope that you can at least uh, anonymize myself.
1: Yeah, they'll tell me what to put on the other side of the screen if you have an anime profile.
0: No, I don't. Is that a <laughs> or... stereotype? <laughs> a little uh, bit. <laughs> yeah, you know, you say that, I'm like, oh, God. That's the red flag of uh, what the stereotype. Here. No, I'm not one of those types of people.
1: No. Um, or a work of if art, you would or just like to some, use some humanoid form that you like, a piece here, of art or something.
0: I can give you an avatar. I frequently use. Yeah, which is so you can email item. that to me. Okay, I'll send you later.
1: Be um,
0: yeah, I can send you that later. The only reason why I ask for the anonymity is because, at least being in an academic environment like I am, we're going to be talking about topics that I don't want to affect my career or my personal relationships. And I guarantee that ugh, some of the things I say are probably not acceptable within certain spheres, but you know, I don't have to tell you that. Well, but, I think, I
1: think the, the first question to ask is why, why is this uh, topic off limits to I mean, the, sure. uh, the one industry whose primary reason to exist is the pursuit of truth.
0: Well, it's a, it's a long story, I guess. I mean, we've had a lot of researchers who have been studying this for decades, but they've all slowly been kind of shunted out, and those that remain are more or less glared at to be quieter. You're next. Yeah. Um, There's a conference I was at last summer uh, related to uh, hormones in the brain, uh, neuroendocrinology is what it's called, um, and during the seminar, the issue of trans issues came up, and We had a bunch of panelists who themselves were scientists in the field of trans studies, or the field of sex differences. Some of which were trans, Uh, and they they more or less told us that science has kind of wronged them as a group for the past half a century, and that modern science now needs to more or less help them do what they want and not question where the source of their differences come from. Which is to me like. As a scientist, like we, you start by understanding what the ground level is. And then you can build into, okay, how do we help them? Because when you go into things like medicine or applied sciences, without a basic understanding of what actually is going on, you make a bunch of mistakes that really hurt people long term. So when people are kind of ordered in like a moral area to don't touch this because otherwise you're harming us, it's like, well, this, is this a threat? Is this just a trying to... Tell us to, you know, do what's morally right. I, I, we're scientists. Our goals here are not to be in some political camp of this is for the greater good. It's just to study the world and determine what's right and what's wrong or yeah. what's truthful. Say.
1: Yeah. And was there at the climate at that particular conference, was there the political will? I mean, the, the group will to challenge uh, the dictate to not challenge?
0: No. Um, so I I know there's a handful of people who do not agree with these sort of views that are put out there. My own mentor, uh, thankfully, is actually one of the few who's not really for all that sort of stuff. And I'm grateful that he is against it. I have another mentor who's also not just himself, kind of has a history with like topics related to trans issues, because his mentor was one of the early researchers on how trans people had some differences in the brain relative to normal people, so uh, I can give that name. The name you might have heard is a, an old Dutch researcher by the name of Dick Schwab. you know that name? Hmm.
1: No, I don't. It's yeah, as really an old Dutch name.
0: researcher uh, who did a lot of early research into trans studies, and so his students further down eventually had their own studies and through that sort of pedagogy had some experience with the matter. And so people in that circle, we I guess I count myself among them, have more of a willingness to say, well, it's more complicated than the general feeling is, and maybe we should be more careful, but we'll, very few of us will come out and say, oh, what we're doing is probably not the right approach. It's it's very couched and like careful language. And the few people who would speak out are doing so quietly in private doors and absolutely not in this public space like a conference. In the conference itself, it was applause and, you know, cheer and many people, actively participate in, like, celebrating it in a very, like, a this is not just for show. They, they believe this.
1: Yeah. Wow. You know, uh, and I'm sure that those people even up to the present day mock the Catholic Church for their treatment of Galileo.
0: Well, I don't think people learn from history and apply it in the modern day as much as they might say they would. <laughs> they see the specifics and think, well, these specifics were the specifics of them. They don't apply today. They're like, well, there's a general principle. The human nature aspect behind what happened then is still present in the modern day, and to an extent, I think one of the problems in modern science has been this extremely strong reluctance to give up the idea of the blank slate mind. Even in neuroscience, which is the field that should be least affected by this mentality, still tends to think of... Oh, oh I'm going to silence my phone. Turn that off. But even in science... Wait one second. Something just came into my audio. I don't know what just happened.
1: Testing, is it me?
0: No, it's on me. I got a phone call and I turned it off. Oh, then it switched
1: over to the,
0: yeah. Yeah, it switched my audio. Trying to figure out the source. I found it. Okay, cool. I need to turn that off. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. One, One phone call just automatically decided, I'm taking the headphones away. Yeah, could could um,
1: just while we're doing audio stuff, and um, uh, could you could you just check on Zoom and try your other microphone? Because I think I'm we're using your Bluetooth microphone, and it's not quite as fidelitous.
0: Ah, you're probably right. Right? Let me check that. My first turn off my phone. If (laughs) your
1: if your laptop or computer has might have a better microphone. Sometimes it does.
0: Let me check that. Testing one two. Is that better? Oh. Is that any
1: different? <laughs> Give it to me.
0: Okay, good. That's the Yeti Nano that it should have been picking up, but yes. it wasn't defaulted. To. Yeah, so just move okay. that
1: as close as possible to your uh, your your speech okay. delivery or testing.
0: Testing. Does that sound better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, I'm so sorry. I realized no, no no no. Oh, so we were we were talking about the conference, and um oh so the blank slate. As those of you who don't know, is this idea that human beings specifically are kind of built up in a social manner and don't really possess innate behaviors or proclivities from like birth, from their biology or evolution. And it's, it's one of those ideas that I think way back in science, people were like, okay, this is probably not true. We, we are animals. We have innate desires and behaviors that nature has given to us, just like any other animal would. But there's a political will to not believe that because If you believe that human nature is all social, it can be then changed because it's a lot harder to edit people's genes and biology at a base level than it is to say, well, let's just raise people better, teach them better. And they won't have all these behaviors like, well, you can raise boys and girls however much you want. And they're still going to have certain differences that you can't change on average.
1: And those those differences don't stop at the neck.
0: No. um, Actually, one of my favorite tidbits of information to give is this – second hormonal epoch that occurs outside of puberty so everyone knows that during puberty boys and girls get different hormones that change them but there's a second one that very people know about uh right around the perinatal periods so right before they're born uh where much of the masculinization occurs in young boys so right before children are born if they're male they receive a huge influx of uh both estrogen and testosterone which masculinizes the brain and it does it in such a way that it prunes certain areas so that they more or less delete themselves and expands other areas. And if you're a female, a young girl, this doesn't happen. Uh, and so much of the differences in young boys and girls is attributable to this initial epoch way before puberty. So uh, wait, wait, so boys you're and-
1: saying that testosterone, like it, it deletes parts of the brain and... Uh, shuffles the resources to other parts of the brain. And, and I know that's I really guess. crude, but
0: that is, so that's close enough. So the way it works is that in the brain, there are receptors for both testosterone and estrogen. It should be noted that before puberty, estrogen actually masculinizes the body uh, and it switches later on in life. Um, so the, the brain detects this estrogen or testosterone and it will masculinize the brain. And it does so by selectively Growing some areas and the other areas that would have otherwise grown are like oh there's estrogen and testosterone we need to delete and so they apoptose which is when the cells more or less you know safely detonate and, and they're gone uh, and then those parts of the brain get smaller and so there are sexually dimorphic parts of the brain that are determined way way early before puberty uh, and those are fixed those okay. aren't gonna like vary. so like people often say and this bugs me a lot about trans like women for example. They have the brains of women. It's like, well, that's definitely not true because being natally male, they went through this hormonal epoch, which definitely developments them towards one type versus another type. And unless they didn't undergo this epoch, in which case they are an intersex person by some classification, they definitely have a brain that early on masculinized like every other male would. Yeah. And so that with that masculinization carries a lot of traits, a lot of uh, orientation. So the the things versus like uh, people difference that is often described personality, that's attributable to that epoch. Yeah, The personality differences are largely thought to be coming from this epoch. It's really hard to say exactly what in the brain is being changed to cause these individual changes. We don't yeah. really know that, but I do okay. know that in cases of women or even like non-human animals, where you masculinize females by exposing them to early Hormones like estrogen and testosterone, uh, they long term have these effects in, in well, in, in non human animals. It's like anxiety differences or socializing differences. But in, in, in humans, um, the common uh, case study is uh, CAH, which is congenital adrenal hypoplasia. Mm-hmm. You may have heard of that. Uh, that causes early exposure to testosterone in young, even fetal girls, and they become very. Boy-like in their personality, and that carries on for life, uh, and, and so that is shows evidence that a lot of the early differences in personality and behavior are attributable to this initial hormonal epoch period.
1: Okay, so sorry to go there, Gattaca style. Um, people could potentially influence the sex characteristics on a social anxiety on a psychological level by, yep. by taking a pill or something.
0: Well, it would have to be the mother, and it would have to be Ooh, yeah. somehow in the womb. Uh, What's tricky, so actually the body is prepared for this. Uh, there's a risk of the circulating estrogen, estradiol, that's in a mother, getting uh, the female, the the fetal, eh, the fetus, getting exposed to that. And so the body has protection, specifically in natal girls, to prevent circulating estrogen from masculinizing uh, the body. I know it seems weird because you think of estrogen as being feminizing. That's later. Early on, it is, is a masculinizing force. Uh, okay. And so the fetus is protected from that in the case of a young girl. And so you'd have to overcome uh, the protein that is involved in sequestering that. I don't – I can't name it off the top of my head. Uh, but yes, if you had a, a some sort of enzyme that could break down that protein, then the fetus would be exposed to maternal estrogen and she would likely become far more masculine in her personality. Wow.
1: So we don't it doesn't sound like we have a phrenology of gender yet where you can say that these these brain changes that happen in utero um, kind of grow or shrink well, very specific one to one, like my anxiety center, my creativity center, my sure. authority center. We don't have that, but we do have something
0: well, when we say the word gender, we want to be very specific because yeah. when we have people who are gender atypical, masculine women or feminine men. I I would be very careful to assign them a gender of something other than what their natal sex type gender would be. Um, uh, A feminine man, a quiet, you know, prefers to, you know, read as opposed to go out and play sports, draws in his spare time. I wouldn't describe him as the gender of woman. He's a man. So it's very careful how we assign the word gender. Does gender describe, I feel like a man or a woman, or does it describe a set of Characteristics that are typical to someone of some sex or another. I don't know the definitions change very frequently depending on who you're talking to and so it's really hard to get like what exactly are we talking about here?
1: Yeah, yeah, so I would um It's a it's a bad term, but it's the best term that I have so there is sex typical behaviors and then From which we aggregate a concept of gender stereotypes and Mm -hmm. then there's a feedback loop feedback loop on a social level where we, um, in a good society or a bad society, we try to direct male typical uh, males towards uh, certain values or virtues that are best yep. suited to their typical behaviors and females too. And then an understanding of uh, to the men about the women typical behaviors and to the women about the male typical behaviors. So the, yeah. there's g- gender is a social um, kind of contract and then there's gender as the um, – just the the outgrowth of sex characteristics.
0: I, I agree that that is the good way to conceptualize what is happening. I think right now in society we're in this battle of, well, is it OK to reinforce the male typical preferences in men and the female typical preferences in women? Um, and, and I guess there's a the question of if we make assumptions about what preferences boys and girls will have – is that preference then best to act upon and, and, and reinforce like, oh, you're a boy. Therefore, it is best if we train you with the assumption that you're going to act like a man. And they would point to the examples of gender atypical people being like, that's not what's best for them. But I would say for the gender typical people, they do at least need an assumption as to where they're going to grow up towards so you can help guide them. Um, yeah. There's a book I'm thinking of by uh, Leonard Sachs. As uh, Why Gender Matters. I don't know if you're familiar with that book.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah.
0: he talks about ways to deal with boys in particular who are overly aggressive, overly interruptive, and boisterous. And, and the term he uses in that book is affirm the night, and A N I G H D, which is this idea of like, okay, you have this boy who has all this masculine energy innately in him. You need to train him up to be responsible with that oriented towards a goal that he can then pursue and with the belief that he will be rewarded for being virtuous and judicious with his energy and and strong desires to do some great thing in the world and and you want to maybe approach women young girls with a different mentality because they are driven by different inclinations usually Uh, and so if you want say young boys to grow up properly you do have to make some assumptions about what will work for them And perhaps there are edge cases, gender nonconforming, sex atypical boys who may need to be taught a different way. And in that case, you kind of have to have an individualized type of approach to the people. And that's really complicated because people want to generalize and make models of things and just say, ah, good enough. And oftentimes it is good enough, but it has all these people on the edges who get left out. And, you know, nowadays in politics, we are very, very sensitive to the needs of people on the peripheries, on the edges, and we're getting so caught in that that now we're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, well, let's let's make no assumptions like, well now the remaining ninety percent of people are probably wanting for something they otherwise needed. Yeah, yeah. That's my idea yeah. at least. Uh,
1: all very well said and I, I definitely agree with you. But back to the female typical, male typical brain behaviors, or the development—you sure. said me, socialization and anxiety. Like, what do we actually kind of know about the sex typical characteristics? Let's just talk about the typical. We've done okay. the great caveat that not everybody hashtag not all, but yep, in sure. general, let's 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 just kind of figure out what what has science taught us. So there's there's two
0: domains here. We got to be very careful to keep mistake. There's a okay. human research and non-human research. So I work in non-human research, I work with rodents, uh, and so I can tell you differences in uh, socialization, aggression, uh, anxiety differences, how animals of both sexes react differently to meeting other animals of one sex and another, and some of those things may apply to humans, some of them may not. Um, I, in particular, study a particular system in the brain. Uh, the vasopressin system. Vasopressin is a hormone that is involved in the body in water regulation and uh, vasoconstriction. But in the brain, it's radically different. It's involved in socialization and interest in, uh, I suppose, context-appropriate responses to socialization. So, what I mean by that is, if you're a male, for example, vasopressin helps you when you meet another male to execute the proper behavior. What do you do when you meet another male? well you have to evaluate him you either see is he a threat to me is he someone i don't have to worry about is he a friend is he a foe and when you meet a female typically in the wild you think is this someone i can mate with and so vasopressin is one factor in the context specific social behavior system uh, and and we know that in mice and in other animals there is a huge difference in this system between males and females and that's what i study i study there is this one system that is extremely different in males and females and it orients them towards the appropriate behavior depending on the social context. Okay. Really cool stuff. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, it, it's so complex. I don't even know how to phrase a question that can be, you know, communicated in the format of just a discussion about how... Sure. Like, w- at what point does the animal build enough, I guess... um, scaffolding biological and neurological scaffolding to be a behavior you know like like there, there's got to be all this scaffolding that allows the animal to function to eat and to to sleep and to regulate the environment you know regulate their their warmth and stuff but to have a social awareness a social a spatial awareness and then a social mm-hmm. awareness like how much scaffolding has to be built up before you have the emergence?
0: Like Are you that. talking about the amount of development required to have a social awareness or social sensitivity in one's environment? Yeah. Kind of. Well, that's a developmental question, and that asks, what time point does this emerge? We know it happens post puberally to some extent, at least in these animals. Uh, it, this particular system is highly sensitive to um, sex hormones, both estrogen and testosterone. Uh, so, I would say that this system starts developing. After the epoch of puberty, uh, the specific point at which it's fully functional, I don't have a good answer for that off the top of my head. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I would say that, at least in the domain of this system, it is one of those yeah. post pubertal systems, not one of those pre pubertal ones like I talked about with that fetal epoch. Yeah, Different systems, and I would say the vasopressin one is particularly important for things like, well, dominance, uh, reproduction with the appropriate partner, all those sorts of things. It, yeah. it, is, it is usually a mature animal trying to approach a social environment and figure out, what do I do? Usually males. And vasopressin is, uh, plays a far bigger role in males than females. Okay.
1: And in, at what point do you observe, do we observe this animal, rats, playing or behavior that would be playing? And how does that either prepare for the development of social awareness or the effect of the oncom- ah. onset of social awareness?
0: So rats, rats, I believe, play as young pups, uh, although they're decently developed, they're pretty helpless when they're really early on, but later towards their uh, development, before they get weaned, they uh, do exhibit play behavior. Not, To my knowledge, that's not related to the system I usually look at. I also look at mice, which are not <laughs> playful animals. Mice yep. and rats, despite looking very similar, are, they're kind of different beasts. Mice are very mean creatures. They're they're kind of like very fighty, very territorial, very aggressive towards each other. Whereas rats are a lot more cohesive. They can live in larger social gatherings than mice usually do. Okay. Usually, when there's uh, more than one, say, male mouse in area, they fight and either kill each other or one leaves if they're not siblings, and even when they're siblings, sometimes. Okay. Whereas uh, female mice in particular can gather in groups and they're okay with that. Uh, Does, I don't know is, how much we want to stay with the animal domain as opposed to humans. Well, I, is, I is,
1: are, it's just so fascinating. We'll, we'll get back to the human thing, but um, our mice sure. rats are generally more intelligent than mice.
0: Uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. If we, if we can people,
1: gauge that. Yeah.
0: I would gauge that in their ability to solve, say tasks that we set before them requires a certain amount of, assumptions and learning and I would say yes there are many tasks that rats are capable of doing that mice just don't seem to have the caliber to do. Uh, there's none in my knowledge that are mice specific that rats can't do. Most of the time when you're studying really important developmental behavioral stuff that doesn't require brain manipulations you work with rats but mice are super useful in research because we actually have a lot of genetic tools that allow us to alter their their body, their physiology and then say oh how does altering this affect The result. And so, uh, for instance, in my research, we physically altered the vasopressin system to see how altering that genetically caused them to behave differently this manner. We can manipulate it with the tools that cause the neurons that have these uh, vasopressin uh, molecules to either fire more or fire less or be non existent. We can delete them entirely. We have all those tools, and those won't exist in rats because they're not as well. they're not as well characterized in terms of like genetic tools that we have like we would have mice.
1: Okay, and is that an out, uh, an outcropping of an accident of science? Uh, just an kind accident of. of the tools that were developed? There, there's more tools developed for manipulating kind of. mice than rats.
0: It's it's decades of history of research focused on one model organism versus another. Uh, it partially relates to the fact that rats reproduce slightly slower, take longer to develop just because they're bigger creatures. And so Good. science has a preference towards animals that can reproduce as quickly as possible and develop as fast as they can with the minimum necessary behaviors you're looking to investigate. Some people look at fruit flies or other animals that reproduce even faster, uh, but obviously your ability to apply information about an animal model to a human is really important, and so mice are much closer to humans than say fruit flies are.
1: Okay, and rats are even closer? Closer to humans?
0: Uh, equidistant, probably. I don't think they're okay. closer. They're, they're okay. pretty similar. And so what is
1: the methodology of translating the data that you get from studying mice and rats to the human domain? Like what is Okay, the-
0: well that's a great question. So, a lot of it is checking what you learn in one species and making sure it applies to others. So, for instance in my system we we know that the system I study is not just in mice, it's in rats, it's in hamsters, it's in birds, it's in fish. At that point, we're pretty confident that it's a it's a near universal, at least within the recent vertebrate population of animals. Uh, in terms of it being sex different, we've observed it in all these different species as well. It affects it is a primarily testosterone-based, estrogen-based system that is more highly expressed in males and has all these effects, has some effects in females, less so. Uh, and we observe it across all species we looked at that are these extant vertebrates closely related to us. Uh, and, and so we're almost certain it's also in humans as well to the same except we observe the commonalities between them. Okay. Um so once we observe that a system is common across all these related species, then we can start to probe it and say, hey, because this is common to all these species, what we learn about this system so to this animal is likely applicable to all those other animals as well. And people have often, you know, probed that specifically to say, is that empirically true? Yes. You look at other animals and they also respond to the same types of manipulations that we do in mice. Mice are just the easiest one. So you usually start there, you have some finding, and then you try to reproduce it somewhere else, and eventually, ah, oh, yes, it does reproduce. Cool. This is probably common among uh, all the animals we usually care about.
1: Yeah. And so what do we know about specifically the vasosuppressive system in human males versus females? Is that...
0: So we know that the vasopressin system... Is important in guiding. Be- it's vasopressin. It's a vaso because okay. it's based on like the blood. It was originally a hormone involved in vasoconstriction, uh, but it has an entirely different effect in the brain. So in okay. humans and and likely most animals, in which is present, it seems to guide the proper behavior, the social context. And what I mean by that is, it seems to cause animals to show particular interest in behavior when they meet a certain other animal. So. It, it does show interest in females and, and males. So, like, for instance, if presents expressing in a male and they encounter a female, all of a sudden they show a lot more interest in investigating that female. Oh, what is she like? Is she someone I'd be interested in? Uh, you, you remove that, they show them less interest. They're not as... It's like, eh, it's okay. I care a little okay. bit. Now, it doesn't remove their sexual interest entirely, but it does seem to dampen it quite a bit, which is okay. interesting. Um, if a male encounters another male, all of a sudden he... He's investigates a little bit, but balance not interest with in the female, and he starts to show more aggressive behaviors like, oh well, competitor, do I need to be worried or concerned about him? And you remove that base and they're more like, eh, it's in the male, whatever, not a big deal. So it it, it is tuning hmm. the animal to have the right behavior for the right encounter.
1: Okay. Wow. Okay. And so how does it it's just it's so interesting so i guess there could be like a pheromone level where the rat smells the other you have mm-hmm. to perceive it so there's got to be a perception and then there's a trigger in the yep. brain like well, what, what's in the mice, chain reaction
0: in, in mice we know that the system for vasopressin there's one part of the brain called the medial amygdala which expresses a lot of this vasopressin and it is directly connected to a part of the amygdala which is directly receiving input from the olfactory system so mice are very olfaction driven they they smell things, and they know a hundred things about the animals going on. What sex are they? How old are they? What is their fertility right now? Are they dominant? Are they anxious? Are they bigger than me? They? they can smell all things like that. They, they have characteristic proteins expressed in their urine that actually identify them as, I am this mouse, specifically. And they can smell where another animal has urinated and know with precision exactly which animal this was yeah. with confidence. Yeah. Uh, and so their vasopressive system is highly hooked up to this area of responding to the olfaction sensation. And it, it says, hey, we know what the smell means. Go do your thing. Go execute the proper behavior for this context. Hmm. That's kind of what we think is going on. In in animals that aren't rodents, that aren't as olfactory driven, I imagine the system would probably be connected to other perception areas, sensory areas, because we don't really have the same keen sensation of smell that, say, rodents do.
1: No, so we would, and this is total speculation, human beings... Hmm. Um... It could be the case that we have invented cultural markers of sex, which is another uh, mm. uh, definition of gender to me, in order to facilitate sure. visual and and sonic and then posture. Like there's all these other si- signals that are being shown um, that then trigger or act as triggers to this bio biological response mechanism, which yeah. then has to go through and be refiltered through a cultural linguistic and, you know, behavioral and, and, uh, developmental.
0: So I'll, I'll keep this in the domain of speculation. I agree that that is likely what is happening. I don't know that there's evidence that shows that is true, especially because it's a lot harder to probe these systems in humans than it is compared to mice. There's a reason why most of these studies have stayed in animal models is because we can't, Manipulate human brains ethically, uh, we don't really have that ability, so okay. we have to make assumptions. And I agree that that is likely what is happening. Uh, okay. If if only there was a way we could actually probe that with more precision. I know that so so vasopressin is closely related to uh, another hormone, oxytocin. You've probably heard of that one,
1: uh, and people job. have them
0: it, It's a lot. It's related to in-group bias and affiliation. So oxytocin tells you. This person good, stay with them, promote them, do good things for them. And it also tells you, this person's not by your in-group, bad. Oxytocin seems to do that. And the base person is more of a contextual one, individuals type of thing. So we've done some manipulation in humans with oxytocin related to intranasal oxytocin. So there's been studies related to administering oxytocin through the nose. It supposedly presses the blood brain barrier. There's some eh, questionable yeah. stuff there, but we've seen some effects that improve in, say, oxytocin research, trust and affiliation related to exposure to oxytocin. And so I imagine you could do similar to vasopressin because in terms of, like, molecular structure, it's virtually identical. They're, they're basically two different halves of each other. They're, oh. they're very closely related. Okay. Uh, and they actually cross-talk. So say, funny enough, the receptors in the brain that are responsible for responding to vasopressin also respond to oxytocin, and vice versa is also true. So they're they're interrelated systems. So you
1: brought up a really interesting word. Uh, you you used the adverb form of ethical, ethically. We we have ethically. no ability to do this eth- ethically with humans. Well. <laughs> so that's that's a that's an ought, not an is, right? Unless there is business uh, yes. like to it.
0: No, no, you're you're right. That let's imagine we lived in the free science. There's no limits. You know, crazy world, and we could have patients volunteer like hey would you like to take certain parts of my brain out and see what happens sure uh we could do that and we could serve hey this 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 this, this happens oh uh, i don't think that would ever get past any ethics board ever in any university you're not allowed to start removing parts of people's brains but in theory if you were able to do so yes you could probably try and i see replicate these things you find in mice uh by either removing parts of the brain or say uh, putting in an antagonist for vasopressin receptor to say ah we've turned off the part of the brain that responds to vasopressin what happens to your behavior how do you feel but well, you know even let's let's actually let's say with that one let's imagine we could just put a chemical in the brain that causes them not to respond to vasopressin that's not removing anything from the brain it's not having probably long-term effects that would be a good way to study what exactly it's doing in the human system and say does this corroborate with um my cat has just jumped on the table <laughs> that's <funny.
1: laughs> We're not recording your face, so you can have the cat there
0: as much as you want. That's okay. Um, So let's say we wanted to do that manipulation. We could then say with decent confidence what the vasopressin system was doing once we observe what behaviors have changed with that antagonist in place. We can't do that because, uh, for ethical reasons, we are not going to be manipulating people's brains in such a way that we could have consequences we don't know. This is a human life, so obviously any long-term effects on this we may not build a reverse, and so we don't want to just willy-nilly inject things in people's brains, Obviously. Okay, but I do, that doesn't...
1: Why can't you do that with vasopressin, oxytocin? Why can't you do that with the, with those hormones, but you can do that with testosterone and estrogen and cross-sex hormones and, and the ah. removal of body parts? Like, what, how... how...
0: <laughs> well, well, that's a touching on two different things at once. First, there's this perception, and I do say perception because it's kind of subjective, of a medical need that these things need to occur. Debate back and forth how much that's essential. I mean, obviously, I believe that trans people do exist to some, like, legitimately, people who need some form of treatment to live their life comfortably as the other sex. Some of them exist. A large proportion, I think, have been sold a bag of tall tales and is probably to their detriment. But let's we'll say that that's true. I think in human research and human medicine, in particular, there is a certain protectiveness to the, the brain head area that we don't want to just like crack that open and start doing stuff there i mean a lot of that has to do with history of medicine things like say lobotomies or uh electroconvulsive therapies those are all things that directly affect the brain And because we've responded poorly to those treatments in the past good reason uh nowadays a lot of therapies and medicines like let's avoid directly messing with the brain as much as possible We say that and then we'll administer hormones of which a lot of them have receptors in the brain. So estrogen, highly, highly enriched receptors in the brain. You put estrogen in someone's body, it's going to have all sorts of effects up there. But we do it because there is this medical perceived need, Uh, whether it exists or not, that's up for debate. Uh, I would say somewhat, but you know, how much is the question.
1: Okay. So that is, uh, so there's this, um, I guess, tension, ethical tension between study and, and uh, trying to get, achieve a result. So experimenting yeah. on human beings yep. in order to achieve a good result is different than studying human beings in order to just understand what a human being is.
0: Yeah, so you're talking about what's called basic research. Basic research refers to just learning what is going on and applied research, which is trying to develop something useful that helps usually human beings. Yeah. So people would give more leniency towards applied research on humans because the assumption is there you are directly improving this person's well-being or at least attempting to. That's what a clinical trial is. clinical trial, we're giving medicines that we don't know if they're going to work with humans. We're giving them to progressively larger and larger populations with the hope that it provides some helpful benefit. And once we observe that something's going wrong, we stop. It's like, all right, no more study. We're not doing this to collect data. We're just trying to make sure we're not hurting people. Once we observe that there's harm occurring, stop the trials. Basic research doesn't really go very far in humans unless you can demonstrate to ethical boards that you are not going to have any long-term negative effects on this person with high confidence. Okay. Uh, and the reason why, say, estrogen and other like testosterone is working is because of this perceived medical need that it has already been demonstrated, they believe, to be effective and be good in this purpose and therefore it is safe to give in this manner without okay. concern about the long-term consequences. Again, I imagine we're probably going to have to step that back in a decade or two once we realize oh, we may have been a little less than as cautious as we should have been with this. So, you know, give it a bit and then we'll we'll turn our our tail around a little bit. But for now, that is the perception.
1: (laughs) Okay. And then, but it's it's also, so those are the ethics which are high-minded, but you described that conference that you were at where everybody was, there was a moral aspect, this moral celebration. I'm wondering, this is probably like, it might not be a question for you, but what are the what's the neuro neurology of, of group moral celebrations of the sort that you witnessed. And, and uh, like, are you curious oh, yeah. about that? Like what, what's going That's on? That's definitely there?
0: like more into the psychology domain than I usually focus into. Like yeah. um I deal with systems, receptors, cells, anatomy. And I usually don't get into the, I suppose more human psychology stuff, unless I'm like going into like Evo psych, which tends to look at more of the, biological effects that are playing a role. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you want to just get my basic as a scientist's peripheral to this understanding, I would say that a lot of it is uh, the idea of morality being a system that binds people together towards a collective cause and that puts them in a tribe of sorts. And by having that unified vision, they fight against the other tribes that are opposing them and you know, compete for resources. And together, my tribe fights your tribe, our tribe is gonna come out triumph, but yay, we get more resources for us. And that has kind of echoed out into these political moral realms of my tribe is all the people who agree with me on these sensitive issues, and the enemy tribe is those people who disagree with me. And we want resources for our tribe, and you know, the tribe resources in that tribe, the enemy tribe, and then our tribe will prevail. Except tribe is no longer, you know, a group of like 20 people out on the savannas <laughs> of Africa you know <laughs> tens of thousands of years ago now it's people in a conference room talking about the big bad evil people elsewhere in the country who are opposing their goals
1: yeah wow dangerous stuff
0: yeah. yeah uh i don't really know that neuroscience has a lot of answers to that problem although i can only say well this particular thing that relates to my domain i think we're probably going about the wrong way
1: yeah okay so um you reached out to me and you mentioned the word autogynophilia did you want uh, really to yes, okay. into that
0: I'm okay with that. So I've reached out to you because I myself recognized how long ago, maybe about a decade or so ago that I had, I I would characterize myself based on the reading I've done. So I don't know how much of like Blanchard's work or say Anne Lawrence's book. I was recently reading her book. um, Men Trapped in Men's Bodies, I believe is the title. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I read these things like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I have something like this. So I would... I identify myself privately as a non-transsexual autogonophile. So I have absolutely no interest in transitioning at any point in my life. Um, I have related to my libido specifically some fetishistic desire related to imagining myself as if I was female, which I believe I have accidentally trained the course of my young post pubertal years through just consumption and then like reinforcement habits. I have allowed what was previously like a, oh, let's explore this idea because I'm a young boy who is exploring his sexuality and all of a sudden, you know, it has a ratcheting effect of you explore a little bit and then a little more, a little more, a little more. And all of a sudden, you're engaging in very strange behaviors that i have like, where did I lead myself down this path? Uh, and so I would like to characterize my particular affiliation with this condition as kind of different from the conversations you have with a couple other people. I know at least two conversations you have with uh, self-described autogonophiles And um, there were some similarities. I identified with them, with some differences. For instance, my particular vision is remarkable compared to them in that I find that it was only active when I am aroused sexually, if that makes any sense. Like, for instance, right now, I feel no senses of desire to be female or woman-like. I am not aroused right now. I'm just talking to you normally, but imagine I wake up in the morning and I have some desire, some sexual urge, all of a sudden those feelings would creep in. They've been there for many, many years at this point. And so yeah. being a male, I in- engage in habits to feed that, clears out of my mind. And I go about the rest of my day, not worrying about it. And whenever the arousal will return, all of a sudden I have those experiences again. So it is very much a associated with my libido type of condition, which I think is very different because some people experience having this feeling in perpetuity. I don't have that. It's it is specific to whatever sexual thing happened to cause me to do. But in many other ways it's very similar uh, to what they described. A lot of the things the, the experiences they engage in the the habits that they do really I experienced many of those. So I was like there's something there that's similar and there's something there that is different.
1: Okay. So when did you first notice that about you and were there I guess like concerns? Did you have concerns about that or was it um
0: I would describe it as a progressive condition and what I mean by that is it starts with this the little things. Um I noticed it consciously in my late teens. I'm 28 right now. Um so that came in the form of like, you know, as a young boy, a teenage boy, you engage in habits that involve conser- con- consuming images of women as one happens to do. And eventually I I believe in this idea of what is described in the research as this target acquisition error or target inversion, where after I've consumed enough of images of women, uh, I eventually came upon this error of sorts of like, it's, this is very sexy. I, I can't imagine I was like that. And I don't know where this idea creeps in. Like this is very hot, isn't it? Like, it gets me aroused, does its thing and it hmm. progresses, eventually progresses into minor forms of transvestitism in private. Uh, and, and, you know, as it happens this didn't excite me as much as it did i don't know a month ago let's do a little more and a little more a little more and eventually i realized all right i have to put a stop to this because i don't want to transition i have no desire to and i realized that if i escalate 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 eventually i'm gonna do something that i can't undo so i i I limited myself on the domain in which i allowed to expand and i uh, feed the beast enough that i can live a normal day without those thoughts intruding in my head so to speak
1: okay And and any desire to reverse that? Or is it possible to reverse that? Do you think they're imprinted in some way?
0: The the word imprint is a good word for this because I believe that in a lot of sexual fetishes, the way one consumes them is that, yes, you become more attuned and more attuned. And all of a sudden, everything that really excites you is related to this one thing. Uh, And I I have observed in periods of my life where, let's say, I don't address my arousal. What will happen is that feeling just possesses me until it's eventually dealt with. And all of a sudden, it's like, it's like having another person in my head of sorts, the person that wants to be this feminine creature. And I don't want that in my head while I'm going about my day-to-day behaviors. It's like, ah, this intruding thought. It's like, no, I want that thought in my head as quickly as I can. And so okay. what that means is I feed the beast. I go about my day and I don't worry about it. Um, but there's an interesting set of like exceptions there. So like, uh, I remember one particular example Three or four years ago, I was making a cross-country trip to move between states, and it just so happens that that morning, I um, I got I got in my car. I'm like, oh, I feel a bit sexually aroused, but I'm not gonna do anything about it. I have a drive to do, and so the next ten to twelve hours of me driving was just thought constantly eating at me of like, imagine imagine yourself in this other way. Imagine what it could be like. And I'm like, get out of my head. I don't want this here. And so no. I spent that entire drive from one state to another across the country. Got home. To where I was actually going to be like, right, I have to get this out of my head, right? Do what you do. And then, oh, gone. I don't do it anymore. Huh? Uh, it, it's like, a, like, a, like something possessing me almost. I mean, I don't believe in things like, say, multiple personalities, disorder. That's not a real thing in the literature. I think that's kind of like made up. But there is an interesting kind of conceptualization of there is different aspects to yourself. And depending on what is currently happening in your brain, different behaviors, different goals might be expressed. When you're angry, for example, the the desires you have when you're angry are, I want to take out my frustrations. I want to destroy something. I want to give them a piece of my mind. And, you know, normal you, if you were in that condition, would be like, that's not a good idea. But that person is not in control right now. The angry, smash, be mad, do things, that's in control. And so in a similar sense, the libidinous part of me has a certain set of desires and goals that he, she, they wants to do. And normal me right now is like, I don't really want to do those things, but Mm -hmm. if it gets you out of my head, fuck it, we'll do it. Okay, And and that's kind of been my approach.
1: Sex has been um, created biologically, maybe created, it's not the right word, but designed biologically um, to to involve other people, right? It's it's reproductive, typically. Um, So what's the relationship between that and other people? Does that get in the way?
0: Well, so that's an interesting question. Um, This should come up because it's a little relevant. Unfortunately, even late in my life as I am, I am still a virgin, which I think does relate to this to some extent. Um, I would imagine, I have to imagine, based on my experiences, if that weren't the case, if I had more sexual experience as a late teen or early college student, I imagine this probably wouldn't have taken its course nearly as strongly. And the reason I believe that is because the theory on target acquisition error seems to suggest that it is a form of error that occurs due to a lack of experience and that hmm. proper orientation towards the desired goal, sex with the woman, likely would prevent this sort of thing from happening. Yeah. Now, um, I, I still am actively involved in dating in, in current years. And usually when I get to the point where I'm interested in someone as a partner, what actually happens is I lose that part of my head, the autogonophilic part that I described for a period of a few months until well, I haven't you know, gotten dead with someone yet, but until that's no longer a thing I can view as an option. So when I have either shown interest to someone or started dating someone usually it disappears for a time being it goes into hiding, which I'm very grateful for. I'm like, thank God, I get that thing into my head. I want to have a normal sexual relationship with a person and not a weird fetishistic complex with myself. I don't really... I, I feel as, as something I'm held prisoner towards as opposed to something that I want to express. I remember the previous person you interviewed, he had a very positive sort of outlook on his autogunified as a gun if I was in the class, and he wanted to help them live the life they were comfortable with, and I I don't want to say I have a negative view, but I definitely view it as a, this is a condition I have to contend with, not something I want to embrace. Okay. If I could get rid of this tomorrow, I'd be happier for it, but the, unfortunately, that's just not the situation. Some people have bipolar disorder, some people have OCD, they deal with these things They try to live normally. In some sense, I have the specter of a person in my head who wants to be on their sex is like yeah 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 we'll do what we need to do to live our life normally and move on huh okay that's what it feels like to me okay
1: um so um you're you're anonymous and this is really personal so thank you for for going here and uh, just tell me when you don't want me to ask any more questions about your i'm going
0: to go but... as as deep as you want because it's anonymous i'm comfortable talking about myself and that extent i just not i just don't want people that know me to know it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that makes
1: sense so, um, what about, um, comorbidities do you have, like, uh, are you diagnosed with, uh, other, like, uh, spectrum, autism spectrum or something uh, like that? Uh, do you think that there's good, any good comorbidity questions. there?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, probably. Um, so when I was a kid around say like 11 or 12, I went to a psychiatrist and they, they gave me a diagnosis. Like your child has Asperger's disorder. Now, um, I didn't like this at all. I was very upset to be given a label. I'm like, how dare you put me in a box? I don't want to be okay. a person with a condition. I want to be me, an individual who has my own behavior. Okay. Uh, however, even in my adulthood, I recognized, yeah, I probably have something related to that. I, I don't want to be viewed as a person with a condition. I want to be viewed as an individual who has his own behaviors and his insecurities, and I deal with that as I do. But, yes, in a clinical sense, I probably have something to that extent. And I know, interestingly enough, the research is very clear that there's a high uptick in trans identification among autistic people, both boys and girls, and I don't know why. I think a lot of it has been suggested to be related to socialization and like, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel like in a social situation, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here, that kind of thing. Therefore, oh, I'm more suggestible to maybe I am a boy or maybe I am a girl depending on your sex. Now, I would suggest that's less likely what's going on with me, mostly because I have a fetish that has become this beast, and I don't really know that that's specific to like the one with on the autism spectrum. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I haven't looked into the literature on that specific. Okay.
1: Well, yeah. So I, I bring it up because um, if if you're a 28 year old virgin, then then there's some. It might be the case that, that there's something about plugging into other people that, that, that's difficult or, or doesn't even ah! hold your attention, maybe, is another way it, of saying it's it. It's more
0: the latter. It's more the latter. Uh, I, I consider myself quite well socialized in my adult age now. As a child, it was far worse. I have adjusted, I would say, decently well uh, growing up. But I'm a bit of a homebody. I pay, pay attention to all my work, pay attention to my immediate friends and peers. I engage myself in a lot of repetitive types of tasks that I fail engaged with, but don't like, introduce like a lot. Like domino novelty. stacking? Or no, not quite like that. I have pet interests of uh, things like uh, I mod for video games. Uh, I do okay. a lot of own private research. Uh, I consume a lot of... I'm actually very politically interested, too. Some vent. Uh, not that I'm ever going to be in politics, but I'm interested in the domain. But... As part of that habit, that course of my life, I, I don't get out as much as I otherwise would. If I wasn't employed, I, I could almost be considered a, a, like a, like a meet or, home, like a, or something like that. Uh, but but no, I actually have a decent group of friends and uh, I'm very engaged in my work. And, you know, uh, I still seek out people somewhat regularly to meet and have friends with and eventually, if I find someone attractive, potentially ask someone out. But I don't do it nearly as frequently as, say, the average male probably would. I don't put myself out there a ton. It's it's like, man, once a week, maybe, okay. <laughs> not, not that frequently. So okay. most of the time I occupy myself with the norms that I'm comfortable with. And it's not even an aversion to novelty so much as I'm very comfortable here doing the things I'm familiar with. and I don't yeah. feel a strong impulse to go out there and find something new, meet someone new, do that kind of thing. And okay. as a result, due to not engaging with that regularly, it doesn't happen often. And, and just through the lack of frequency I have not engaged with a lot of women in relationships in my life. I've had like two and neither of them got to the point of sexuality. Okay. Uh, Okay. So,
1: and, and there's no compulsion, I guess, to, to do that. Like I need to have a woman. There is a, maybe
0: there is, I would say, I would say, yes, there is. There is this idealism in my head of, I would like that. That would be very nice. That would be good for me. I would like a more complete life that has that passive, But I don't feel it as this like, you must go out there. You must find this. This is lacking your life. Go, 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 go. It's not a strong compulsion. It's it's like, that'd be nice. Would you like to eat a nice piece of steak? That'd be nice. Do you feel a compulsion to go out there and buy one? No, not really. But it would be nice. And occasionally I push myself out there and I do it. And um, I ask someone out, you know, every several months or so to maybe twice a year. And sometimes it's a little first date or so usually breaks off to that point sometimes it doesn't and it's like whatever i don't have a problem doing that it just hasn't gone very far and i have a very patient outlook of it'll work out eventually okay
1: yeah i'm not yeah. super
0: concerned I, I have a hope as well that once i engage in that sort of thing long term perhaps that little specter in my mind that makes me have strange feticistic desires that i don't like might go away the literature says it won't <laughs> a lot of antagonophiles have that persist long into marriage uh, and so I suspect that my hope is misplaced there. But you know, maybe I turn out different. Uh, yeah. Who knows? Well, I, I,
1: I don't. This is pure speculation, and I'm speculating about your life, so forgive me for that. But That's okay. the, there, there's some sort of disconnect between your sexuality and socialization, and ah, and your yes. your autogonophilia has um, it, it. It was acquired. It seems like. Over mm-hmm. time, so it might be that. the case that your desire for a woman was broken off from actually getting a woman because of your access yes. to the internet or yes. just your disconnection from society. So, so maybe you don't feel that compulsion directly as mm-hmm. a romantic compulsion or a desire to go out there and get that, but that compulsion is there as this this running Correct. process it, in it, your head it, that, it, it, that activates in, in your libidinous states.
0: I think you're completely spot on with the characterization of what's happening. I think. So, for instance, it's related to this, I don't usually experience a strong what you would call lust for a female body when I observe it. I don't look at you know a picture of a naked woman and think, God, that's really hot. I feel really turned on right now. I'm like, oh, she looks nice. Hmm. Very, very platonic appreciation. Okay. Uh, when I when I'm say attracted to women, I consider myself heterosexual. Uh, it's usually done from a point of romanticism. I, I appreciate them as a person. I want to be with them, have a long term relationship, which builds them. A premise of commitment, intimacy, but no part of me is that Arnold, you know, ancient mammal that just I really want to get <laughs> in there and do my thing. I don't. I, that part of me has been detached, and I yeah. think it's now been spun into this other thing that's in my head. It has gone off the course and continues to go down that trail. And unfortunately, yeah. I'm not certain that those could be reunited. When when I have been in very short term periods engaged with a person, I find that. Though my libido has been somewhat suppressed, my sexual desire is not gone. What actually happens is I tend to have this fantasy of, like, I would really like to sexually please this person and make them happy. And that would make me happy. And it's not of, I really got to get my dick in there and do its thing. It's it's very platonic romantic style. And I recognize that that's not male typical. Usually there is a very strong carnal desire that possesses the minds of many men. Many people I talk to, males, describe their their experiences like, wow, that's gone from me. That sucks. Uh, And to some extent, that allows me to live in society and be free of being a lecherous person that might stare at people inappropriately. So fortunately, I will never be involved in any scandals related to inappropriate sexual (laughs) interests in a person. That won't be a concern for me. But the same thing, I've lost one of the major drivers that pushes me towards behaviors that would get me access to a potential partner. Okay, so yeah, yeah. that that facet is gone. I now have to engage with it purely on my own romantic desire as opposed to some strong libidinous drive that says, go out there, do it. You need this. Yeah. There
1: um what you're bringing up, a lot of the different factors of your personal story it sounds like it's not quite in cell, but it sounds like your experience, oh God. you're 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 speaking to a generational ma- male male yeah. experience. And so, do you have any thoughts I, I, of that? Have you run in those circles?
0: No, I, I flee from those circles. Um, I, I, I want to be careful because I recognize that incel as a group doesn't necessarily mean some negative woman hating person. Although they've often been characterized that way, I feel sympathy towards those people. There is a point of commonality in that being twenty eight and not sexually experienced with a person. I would eventually like that, but like I mentioned, the same way, I also am lacking that strong, strong impulse, which is like driving those men to despair. Like I'm missing this thing I really need in my life. Whereas I feel like I would really like that, but I'm not despairing. I'm okay with the state that I'm in. I eventually expect that I can find some path to there. Yeah. Uh, and you know, um, I don't think this has at all changed my attitudes towards women. Anyway, I, well, uh, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not I'm just hoping. talking
1: about like incel culture, um, by which, sure. um, I'm kind of referring to the more, um, a um subset of mm-hmm. men, but even even in Japan over the last 10, 15, 20 years, there's been a growing population of males who are basically homebodies who don't. I think there's even a term for this. And there's other kind of um, negative stereotypes that go into mm-hmm. that with the anime stuff going on there too. but yeah I'm it seems like there's due to technology. So the we, we've been able to outsource sexual gratification to a virtual domain, outsource sure. socialization to an intermediated uh, social domain, which would be through gaming and through uh, sure. conferences and stuff. So it's kind of we're living yep. in a simulation. So that's unplugging a, a large portion of males and females from direct bodily experience. Yeah. And so that it kind of it has all these consequences. And I definitely
0: recognize that. To be likely a contributing factor. Um, Surely, if I let's say was engaged in say internet pornography as a teen, I probably wouldn't have gone down the path that I did. Consumption of that probably had an effect. And you know, as you start down the path, it goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And so you get to where you are, where you eventually either stop it or reverse course or do something. Uh, But. Yes, I agree. Had I been a more so – see, I mentioned that I was not as well socialized as a teen and child, which was likely related to my diagnosis being on the spectrum, to use the euphemism. And as an adult now, I feel far more comfortable with that. But unfortunately, developmentally, it already has kind of taken its course in terms of the effects. So the, I, I believe very strongly that sexuality as part of one's development is something that you have to kind of be exposed to in the proper context for you to develop along the proper path. So let me give an example. Let's imagine that you're a high school teenage boy and you finally get your prom date. And after you go prom, you go back and you have your first sexual experience. That will likely help tune you for future encounters in the future. That will orient you towards the proper interest of women that Mm -hmm. will then, you know, facilitate, I want to have more of this. And maybe we break up because we go to college and we go to the same college anyway. But I look out for someone else and I, I do all the necessary stuff that I do to do that again. And then you build it, you build it, you build it. And I would say that builds the proper orientation and behavior towards a relationship with a woman. In a converse manner, someone who doesn't do that doesn't have those necessary developmental steps that orient in the proper direction. And you end up potentially like where I am, where I now perhaps psychologically miss those key components that drive me in the proper course. And I have to fill it in via other desires. Like, for instance, I still have this strong romantic interest, very strong. Uh, I even consider myself a bit of a romantic, but I I don't... That is not accompanied by the drive that I think is picked up through normal experience as a teen, typically, or maybe a college student, that most boys, men, would have.
1: Hmm. But why aren't you romancing women, then? Well, I mean...
0: (laughs) It has to do with the fact that I'm picky, which is not helpful in my situation. (laughs) Well,
1: okay, you're picky, so what, what... like? Well, on what level like you want a 10 or something like that or no like what do you
0: i i would say in terms of physique body i'm not aiming for anything spectacular in fact the once you start getting up to the say nines and tens using the euphemism i become less interested i'm more like that's not attainable and i don't really feel any connection to that person i look for someone who's probably more similar to me and someone who importantly has to have the right sort of social vibe the one someone who like I feel that this person reflects some part of me that I can relate to. We seem similar. I feel at ease in your presence. And as I become comfortable, it's like I could see this person as a potential partner. It's it's very, it's less physical than I think the average experience would be. Um, and the reason why that's limited is because it requires a certain level of social exposure to even get to that point. I've been on social dating websites for a couple of years just to try them out. And inevitably what I find is that Almost all of them like, eh, I don't feel anything. I look at them and I'm like, eh, she's a little attractive. but what? I I have to have a social exposure component to even get to the point of where I care. I've even been on dates with a few of them. And most of the time it's like, I don't feel anything. You you obviously look like an attractive woman, but, you know, I, I don't feel a connection. Hmm. I'll use a term which exists in the kind of, I guess, queer spaces. The term that comes up is something called demisexuality, which I don't subscribe to, but I would say if I had to characterize it, it would accurately apply to me as a person, which is this idea of requiring this strong social affiliation to really feel a strong interest in sex and romanticism, that sort of thing. It is often thought to be a very female typical type of modality and, despite being male, I would say I would describe myself that way as well. And I don't like the label because I'm not very into queer labels in general, but it, yeah. it's, it's accurate to the extent which it applies to my psychology.
1: Yeah. So uh, pretend that this is a dating show.
0: Oh no. All right. Dun, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Let's go. Yeah. So what do
1: you, what, what are the qualities then? Like the social qualities and we can start something like really anodyne, like a, sense of humor or something like that, a certain sort of compassion, interest in technical things. What 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 is the sure. what is it that gets you like, oh, this is somebody I'm excited to be around. Or this is somebody.
0: Uh, it, well, in the context that it, it has to be a woman, I mean, obviously a man won't have this feeling for me, but it, anytime I'm with someone who shows a strong interest in my interests, I talk about things I'm interested in, they reflect on that and they're really into mm. it and they show a deep interest in me as a person. Like I want to continue the social engagement I think that we have a lot to talk about and she shows a, a, a comfort in being around me. And I, I reflect on that, it's like, oh, you have a lot of things I care about that you're interested in, and, and you seem very passionate. And we get along together. It, it yeah. almost seems to be like a an elevation of the platonic into something higher. A, a, a sufficiently strong enough platonic interest becomes a potential romantic okay. interest. like
1: some sort of emergence of Eros. Yes.
0: If the person is infrequent enough in my connection to them, well, we get along a little well, but not, like, super, super well. It's like, oh, this is a platonic person. I I consider them a friend. We get along. We'll do okay. things together. But someone who I spend a, a lot of time with becomes this elevated, I, I like them as a person. I want to have them as a partner. I care about them. It, it does feel to me like this integration of once a friend into this strong mentor partner and which is unfortunate because I would say a lot of modern dating practices kind of limit that approach. A lot of them are far more spontaneous in the way that they can operate. They yeah, operate is, far more yeah. on shallow. Uh, we just met. You're attractive. I'm attractive. Let's fuck. And then eventually we'll see if we work our relationship. Whereas I have the complete opposite desire. Like I'm not even doing anything sexual until I, I care about you so much that I would see that as something I care about. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry. To if, say if, this,
0: if offered, but... if, yeah, if offered that early on, I'd be like, I don't know if I'm there yet. It's a very yeah. female answer. Well, I mean, if, if
1: I just, and again, Paul, I'm sorry to apologize so much, but sorry to say this, but like, you're, you're probably best suited for a, a, a dating. If you wanted to do like a dating game, the best venue <laughs> would probably be a church, where, which you're, is a context, a social context, where there's just gradual exposure. Where that isn't yeah. supposed to be that sexual thing isn't you're not supposed to be ironically up there,
0: yep yeah. it's very funny you say that i I myself am, am not a religious um i I was raised Baptist Christian and I deconverted in my early teens. um but you know, reflecting upon the political life we lead now in this country and all the things going on, I've often wondered like you know, I wonder if some religious exposure would do me some good, not because I believe in any of the actual supernatural aspects to it or anything like that i don't no no amount of going to church is going to make me believe in heaven or hell or some spiritual creature that looks upon me from above but you know it might help guide my ethics make me a better person meet people in a community that gets Mm -hmm. me out there And, and those things are valuable even if i don't necessarily subscribe to the supernatural components that often coincide with religion now unfortunately you kind of get all of them together and so it would be very difficult going to church and be like, hey, how are you? What's what are you about? Like, oh I I'm an atheist. Like, what? What are you doing here? <laughs> I'm just
1: trying <laughs> like, to be yeah, good.
0: Well, I'm just trying to be a good person. It's like I <laughs> hope you guys believe in <laughs> I hope you guys believe in, you know, virtue by your deeds as opposed to faith. Because uh yeah. I don't have faith, that's for sure.
1: Hmm. Well you don't know. What's your relationship to emotions?
0: Uh, can you be a little more specific? I what you mean.
1: Well, the way that we're, we're speaking about women, the way that we've spoken about sexuality, and maybe it's just because of the way that you're communicating. Maybe you're just a very um, – you are work in, in research, but I could see you being a very good teacher. So you have a, a way of presenting information in a very lively way. But we're talking about such personal things, and you're, sure. you're presenting them almost kind of uh, scientifically, almost objectively, um, kind of off-the-cuff stuff. Um, so I'm wondering, like, is that – a Is that actually communicating your relationship to emotions, to strong emotions, heavy emotions? When you are overwhelmed by the emotional, when you're confronted by chaos, do you kind of just start to organize things like you're doing? Um,
0: So there's a lot of questions in there. I would say, one, I have taught. I am a graduate student. So as part of what I do, I am required to teach. I, um, I enjoy teaching to an extent. I can find it to be... A bit of a takeaway from the other things I care about which I hate to say but you know I, I in the moment I'm like yeah I like teaching people stuff and so I often I consider myself a, a fairly patient person when it comes to teaching people things like however long it takes I'll find the words to communicate to them and when it comes to my own emotions I, I spend a lot of time in self-reflection that seems very like gosh to say I think about myself a lot but you know I often like try to interrogate why do I feel the way I do? Where is this coming from? What is going on in my head? Why am I having this experience? And
1: yeah,
0: As a result, I, I try to come up with plausible explanations like, okay, this is probably what's going on. I've read this piece in scientific literature and it seems to match my experience. And so maybe that's what I'm having happen. Uh, when it comes to being in the throw of emotion, so to speak, and not emotional right now, but like I described anger earlier, like uh, yes. I used to be easily taken by anger or rage whenever – like frustrated me i would feel like a possession of sorts like it's in control it wants to do its thing i let it do its thing and then eventually it tempers itself out and i return to normal oh or there's even positive experiences like um are you familiar with the uh term frizzing? Uh like uh, the feeling of sensation of goosebumps or in your body yeah, yeah, yeah. especially in a strong emotional state i have experiences a lot with music uh very strong passionate music dealing with that sensation and oftentimes once i have that physical sensation it'll actually evoke in me a mental state of like how to describe it i would describe it as a very positive hopeful experience about humanity of wanting to see humans flourish and participate in that and do the best i can for society which is i contrast with my normal state which is like i'm kind of lazy i'm like i do what interests me and other than that eh. i'll, I'll kind of leave it as it is whereas that other state i described was very pro-social pro-human i want to see a better world emerge and do what it takes. I'd almost call it different out if I was religious. But, you know, I, I can be taken in various emotional states depending on what yeah. occurs to me. And, and But they're very temporary. And, you know, after a few hours, they're gone. Or after I wake up in the morning. I've, actually, I've never held a grudge in my entire life. I'll go to bed angry at someone for doing something horrible. And then I'll wake up and be like, yeah, I'll go forgive them. Whatever. Huh. Okay. And I, 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 If you ask me to name someone in my life I don't like, I'm like, some people are annoying, but I deal with them. I, I can't hold on to anything strong, well, negative oh, in that sense for long. Okay,
1: so with with a dearth of uh, negative emotion, such as grudge, mm-hmm. yep. how how at all do you make sense of the political domain without like wanting to smash it? everything
0: apart? Oh, well, I don't hold grudges towards individuals, but okay. I do have long standing antipathy towards negative concepts and things and actions that happen out the world, like, group A is doing X and I want to stop that. And that carries on for however long it needs to. And even though I don't have any individuals, it's like this person's evil. This person's a bad person I don't like. I Mm -hmm. still have in my head this conception of there's a bad thing happening out there and I'd like to stop it. I'd like to put a halt to it and improve on the situation. And that carries through, but it's not, I don't have associated with things like contempt or like a strong antipathy. It's more of a this is a bad thing and i'm concerned about it and i wish we could fix it
1: and what are what are what's something that's concerning to you of late politically well, I don't
0: we can stick within my domain i mean the fact that i even have to have this conversation behind a veil because it's not okay for me to have some of the opinions i do in public is something that sucks to me i'm a advocate in the great liberal values of free speech and open inquiry and you know dialogue between I mean, people with disagreement and i would like to live in a world where i could be known in my workplaces yeah he has some opinions that i don't really agree with him, but it's okay i mean we have different points of view mm-hmm. and that's not the world we live in i live in a world where i'm pretty sure that we're known all the things i believe and think to be true i would be ostracized probably not fired mostly because i don't think they have anything they could say is definitely like odds for such a thing but definitely like it would hurt me in a career manner because no one would want to do anything with me, I'd be put in a corner left to be alone, that sort of thing. Because yeah. I had politically unacceptable beliefs, especially with regarding things like well, trans issues, related to my own experience. There are queer-identified people within my workplace, coworkers even. You even. Know, I treat them with the respect they ask of me, but if they were to actually interrogate me as to what I actually believe, they would find, well, oh, actually, I disagree with you on almost everything you believe, but I'm still willing to treat you as you're asking me. And I don't think they would find that to be an acceptable answer because I I think they generally want me to agree with them. And failure to disagree is is akin to being – disagreeing about their races being equal or that, you know, they have a common – it's an unacceptable belief like that.
1: Hmm. Do you foresee that – how do you foresee that working out over time?
0: Does Um, the institution
1: just fold to these people or does the institution – do these people eventually just breed themselves out of the institution?
0: We either win or I leave, one of the two. Um, I'm hopeful that we can eventually turn the tide in the next decade or so. People realize what's a win state then. Ah, the win state is that we acknowledge that there's an acceptable set of v- views on this topic, and that we should have caution when dealing with issues related to say medicalization, of children, uh, things like that. And you know, I-, I want people in the world to live whatever life they feel comfortable with, and if that means adopting identities that I don't know if I necessarily agree are real, but they feel comfortable with that. Go for it. There were emo kids in my high school, and they were left alone. Whatever. <laughs> there, there are non-binary people today, and whatever. If that's what floats your boat, I don't necessarily agree that that's a real thing. But you can do what you want, and I'll leave you alone. Uh, I, I feel like that should be an acceptable point of view, and it shouldn't be. You don't agree with me on my worldview. That means you hate me. I don't hate you. I don't feel much hate at all. But hmm. I just don't agree with the descriptive view of reality that you possess. And I, I want us to get to the point where we can say that, and it's not a huge social faux pas.
1: And how does, how does it get to that state um, without people, I guess, martyring themselves by sacrificing anonymity?
0: A hard question. If I had the answer, I'd probably be doing it. Yeah. Um, James Lindsay, uh, uh, New Discourses, put out a video the other day. I think it was like four different types of action you can take to fight back against these sort of incursions within your domain. And and they were different forms of protest to be taken. So a lot of it is just like not going along with it, even quietly. It's doing your best not to contribute to the elevation of these strong moral beliefs that force other people to kowtow to them. Otherwise they get ostracized. And, you know, I think it only takes a handful, a critical mass of people who just like, look, you can believe what you want, but I'm just not going to go along with it. You can do your thing. I'm not even going to stop you, but just I will exist in my own space where I won't make this my priority. And right now it, hiring practice in academia require things like diversity statements where you must submit that you are going to contribute to this environment. And if you are insufficient in that regard, they look at you as what are you doing? You're not with the program. Our program yeah. isn't promoting these values. like, that's not what I care about. I don't even agree with these values. And if you wanna do it, I won't even stop you per se. I don't agree with them, but I won't stop you. But insufficient compliance is already too much for them. So we have to break past the ability to even be in a different domain before we can get to the point of like, actually turn the tide of like, okay, now that we can have this ecosystem of different points of view, let's actually see which one is the better one to carry out in the future. We're probably a couple decades from that. But it, I in terms of like getting to the part where we can coexist, maybe in the next few years, hopefully. Mm. Okay.
1: Well, I mean, and you know, the the anonymity um, issue it does have trade-offs, of course, but the fact that you're even being recorded right now and sending out a signal that there are other academics, there are other researchers, there are other scientists that aren't on board with this is gonna it's yep. gonna help, you know, other people out there.
0: If if it was in my power to make myself anonymous and know that I wouldn't face strong social repercussion, I'd do so. I don't know if I'm more concerned about the autograph part or I'm more concerned about the <laughs> transgressing social noise part. Both of those have <laughs> elements of I would like people not to know that I have these.
1: Yeah.
0: One because I want people to think me as an old person and one because I don't want to be viewed as this moral demon. Yeah. And both of those are definitely like a that's a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah. here I am anonymizing to prevent that social backlash.
1: Absolutely. um, I do have to say, I do have to say that you would be an excellent dad, so you should really, you know do what it takes <laughs> to to find the right woman, start a family. Yep. I just think that your ability to communicate ideas, to articulate yourself, uh, to be a teacher, a leader, and then to actually have a lot of integrity with your thought <laughs> is going to translate very well to raising children. so
0: i I would love to be a father one day. In addition to like, you know, having a romantic partner, one of the things I fantasize about is just like being able to raise kids and see them grow up and perform well and and know that I helped contribute to their well being. And I think about these things sometimes like, that'd be really nice. That would be a good life. I would like to live that life. Mm -hmm. It's just that, you know, I have to do necessary steps to get there and it'll take me some time. I'm not impatient. I'm not, again, I'm not despairing that these goals in my life haven't been met. I mean, I'm, I'm male. So as I get older, my prospects get better, hopefully. Uh, I'm going to get a PhD in a few years and hopefully have a, a decent position. You know, the right person will come along, find me to be worthwhile, and hey, it'll work out. And we'll go from there.
1: Yeah. There'll be a moment with a grad student that flourishes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope that I'm not a professor because that may be frowned uh, uh, upon. Uh, I'd know some professors who are in relationships with grad students and there's definitely been a uh, is that okay yeah. <laughs> they're both they're both adults yeah <laughs> there's a conflict there's definitely a certain power there but uh, uh, uh,
1: uh you know it's uh, consensual yeah yeah women uh female typical uh desire uh is for powerful men so uh
0: yeah i, I recognize i'm i don't want to use the word red chill but i've heard and heard the advice of like you know you gotta be strong you gotta be competent you gotta be all these things like yeah i'm okay with that i understand the game i'm willing to play the game but you know might take me some time i'm not exactly the highest on the wrong there so however long it takes me to play the game i'll play it and i won't be unhappy that this is life because life ain't fair anyway and i don't really hold grudges against life for being the way it is i'm very much accept things as they are and change what you can and the rest you just deal with yeah yeah well next
1: very fascinating discussion. We kind of went all over the map and there's so many other places to explore. Um, but it, it's just great to, to meet you. And I typically ask where people can find your work, but you're being anon. But do you have a blog? Do you, is there a uh, way for like, you're do? it sounds like you're doing some fascinating stuff, but that's decoupled from this conversation. So maybe it can't yeah. be shared. Well,
0: if, if if people really want to follow my anonymous self, because I have two Twitter accounts, I have actual Twitter where I engage with academics in my field with my real name and then I have fake Twitter where I am on my anonymous account where I say what I actually think. <laughs> um <laughs> so I mean I'm on Twitter I'm at the Nexus T E H N A X E L A S.
1: Is that from a and d game that you came up with 10 years, no,
0: years ago? No, uh when I was a young child a friend of mine we both came up with nicknames as part of personas we would play as and like fantasy. We did a lot of sparring and stuff. And so we yeah. tend to be these great heroes. And that was the name I came up with. And I just held on to it. Said, yeah, cool. Next Alice. What,
1: what's uh, his powers? Nick Alice. Oh,
0: I, I, it wasn't like a superhero thing. It was just like a, the charismatic man that you see yourself being as like this embodied yeah. goal. And so I took that and said, yeah, I'll, I'll adopt the name of a childhood persona of like the ideal person I want to be. And I'll make that who I actually pose as Anonymously online. I thought that was very like symbolically, it's a good thing. Pretend to be the person you want to be.
1: Yeah. And then, uh, and then see what happens in the process.
0: Go from there. Yeah. So if you want to follow me, I'm on that Twitter account. I don't post a ton. <laughs> okay. I, uh, yeah. I, I am more of a lurker than I am a content creator. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Any, any, uh, books that you recommend, uh, that, that really turned you on the last, uh, couple months? Like just really fascinating? Books or podcasts um, or other Yeah. I actually to- do
0: a lot of Audible. So, uh, I recommend a lot of David M. Buss, the uh, evolutionary psychologist. Oh. He does a lot of fascinating work on the evolutionary origins of a lot of psychological beliefs and, and behaviors. So there's two of them. There's the murderer next door, which deals with the concern of male aggression and where that comes from, what it's doing. And then I can't, I'm trying to remember the one on sex and relationships quickly i'm going to do a google because it's been a while since i've read it
1: well you're looking that up i i just finished um
0: evolution Egypt of desire
1: movement. okay the evolution of desire
0: yes I, I forgot the title but yes the those two things dealing with human aggression and then human sexuality which are of course very important forces in the world and the, things that i study and wrote it to some degree yeah. I, as a child i was very interested in how why people behave the way they do maybe that little autistic spectrum, like, how do people work really? I don't get it. And so I took that and I went to research, like, well, I'm going to figure it out from an animal-focused research perspective and go from there. And even though I probably am less confounded by social situations as I was as a child, I'm a lot more socially, socialized as I am at all, I still have that general interest of, like, what causes people to behave the way they do? Where do these beliefs and, and feelings and compulsions that we have, where do they come from? And so that's why I'm in research because I care about these things. Yeah. I would say them as a career.
1: Do you foresee a book, a, uh, you know, audible book Give at me some decade. point in a decade, Give me a decade. or so? Yeah.
0: I'm a, I am still a grad student. Uh, let yeah. me finish my career and become yeah. a, a genuine expert as opposed to just relaying the things that I've read from other people. Most of what I told you was things that I read from previous literature. It's not like here's the research I've done. Yes. It tells you yeah. X is Y. I haven't done much original research yet. I'm in the process of doing that. If you give me a little bit, I'll eventually come back and have a book.
1: Maybe. Well, I, I look forward to it. Uh, Your brilliant mind, brilliant mind. Thank you so much, next, oh, for joining me. Thank you.
0: Me. Uh, happy to. And uh, good to speak with. You. Is it Benjamin or Ben? I feel like I should ask the person. Uh,
1: Benjamin is the preferred term, but people have been calling me Ben.
0: Well, thank you, Benjamin, for us. having me on. Uh, I appreciate the platform to talk about the things in my life. Absolutely.